welcome to Walking in Discipleship. This is episode 17 of a podcast for those who are working through the discipleship guide, The Walk. Your hosts are Pastor John Varis, Pastor Tim Barr, and Alan Brace. This podcast is about the principles of purity, which is chapter 9 in the guide, on, starting on page 133. This is a sensitive topic, and Pastor Tim, why don't we set some guidelines for this podcast before we really get into discussing the chapter? Yeah, first of all, if we have children listening in, I'm not sure that we're going to be able to make this completely a conversation where every child at every age would be comfortable or should be comfortable with, but we are going to be cautious in that regard. And I thought our book is very Bible focused, um, biblical principle based. So um, we, but we want to be cautious of the topic, but really I, I have one main kind of idea that we need to communicate about this. Um, and that is this chapter is intended to help Christians deal with the personal sins and the personal battles connected to uh, purity in the area of sexuality. And there, this is not a chapter that's intended for those who have been sinned against in this way. So, for example, those who have gone through child abuse or rape or sexual assault or sins like that, the Bible really does speak to those issues and offers help and hope, but this chapter is not intended for that. So if you are a mentor or and you're mentoring someone that is going through those kinds of issues, simply going to this chapter could actually harm. Um, because if we're sitting there um, going to this chapter, we might sit there and say, hey, you need to... Um, change your behavior. No, these people have been sinned against and they need to be understood that it's a different thing to be dealing with a personal sin than to be sinned against. And I would just encourage you, if you're a mentor and you are asking questions and you find out the person you're mentoring has been harmed in that way, and especially if they've never told anyone or never got help, that that is what our churches are intended for. They can come, they can share their stories with us, we're going to be careful about how we handle their stories, but we want people to be able to get hope and help. And we just want to be clear that this chapter is not intended to engage those issues, but rather this chapter is intended to challenge the majority of the church to live in Christian purity. Because this is a battle, I believe, that pretty much every person that's alive struggles with, and even within the church. And so we want to be really careful with that. Uh, maybe another question I might ask John, because John's been, um, his degree is in ethics, and specifically he deals a lot in this area. And maybe, John, I would ask this, when a lot of Christians think about purity, they think of the purity movement. That's that movement that started within the Southern Baptist Convention, kind of worked its way out. And the idea of purity in most Christians' mind is, is that you save yourself for marriage. Now, so if someone's listening to this and they're already married or they're older, does this material still apply to them? Oh, absolutely. Because I think in this material, we will find hope. No matter where you are in the walk with the Lord, if you have been through, um, let's say, premarital cohabitation and um, you fell into some sort of sins uh, in this uh, field, uh, I hope by the end of this podcast, um, you will be able to see that the Lord still has grace for you, and uh, through his word and through his power, uh, in God's grace, you can be forgiven and uh, strengthened in, in your walk. Is it only a sin that is, is the pressure for this 
type of sin only from external uh, sources like the like culture or or is this an inherent uh, or is this part of our DNA part of our this this desire for this sort of sin? So my humorous way to respond to that is um, now this only works in English by the way, but you know when Adam first saw Eve, he's like, "Whoa, man!" Um, the um, <laughs> I know, John, that doesn't work at all in Romanian, but it is still fun in English. Um, there is a sense in where God has intended for man, a man and his wife to desire each other. So when we get to Genesis chapter 3 and we go through the fall as humanity, um, what happens is this. The desires that God intended for good have been corrupted by man. Um, they're corrupted by the fall. They're corrupted by sin. And therefore, um, I think there's a sense in where what we're really strongly dealing with is these strong lust and desires that we have that are intended for good, but have been corrupted. Now, I'm not saying that society doesn't shape that corruption. I also think the devil and the demonic world shapes that corruption. Um, but that corruption is inherent to our fall nature. You're saying that the outside uh, culture really adds fuel to that uh, and, and, you know, sort of reminds us of that continuously. Is that what you're saying? The way I put it is this. If you grew up in a country and the only road you ever driven on was a little back road, you probably only learned to drive like 55 miles an hour slower. But if you grew up in a city with big highways, you probably learned from the outset how to drive at 70 and 80 miles an hour. Um, when it comes to immorality, we live in a culture today that's more like an urban city with no speed limits. Um, there's just nothing in the culture slowing us down. And so I think what's happening is as people are stepping into the church, it feels like the church is so incredibly backward because we're not out trying to live on that highway of sexual immorality. Um, and I think maybe that helps us understand how culture shapes it. But at the end of the day, how fast your car goes is determined by your foot and the gas pedal. Um, in the same way, immorality is determined by personal choice. I would say that culture actually amplifies what whatever is already in 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 our hearts, and um, maybe we can uh, tackle a little bit the second part of uh, Brother Allen's uh, question. And I think, um, as the book says on page one hundred and thirty-four, is that every culture has found some way to idolize and rationalize this scene. And um, if I may recommend um, an excellent book on how culture um, works against our biblical thinking about sexuality is a book by Daniel Hanbach, and the book is called True Sexual Morality, and uh, the subtitle is Recovering Biblical Standards for a Culture in Crisis. And his uh, argument in the book is that um, we need to recover the biblical standards from a paganized uh, society that worships um, uh, sin uh, and uh, sex. Yeah, and our culture has gone through two sexual revolutions, and we're just setting it up for where we're going to get to with, it, with looking at the Word of God. But in, in the 60s and 70s, we had a first sexual revolution that opened up premarital sex. Um, remember the hippies? Um, kind of were the fullest and most radical expression, but we began to see um, the 
kind of the pop music, all kinds of things was reflecting this growing sexual revolution. Dating took on all kinds of new meanings. But then as we got into the early 2000s, we now found ourselves in a second sexual revolution in which in our culture now um, all of the inhibitors um, that were historically in a Judeo-Christian culture are are really removed. So now we're seeing things like homosexuality, LGBT+, um, just all this kind of stuff. And so now what we're dealing with is, and I love what John just said, we're dealing with a culture that worships sexuality. Um, And they feel like they have not only an obligation to participate in every impulse, but there's also this expectation that everyone will validate that impulse. And if you don't validate it, you somehow have sinned against them. Um, So I, I think what we're dealing with is a very difficult climate where our culture is idolized and worships sexuality instead of God. And you're made to feel foolish if you aren't part, uh, actively participating and letting people know that. It, it's kind of one of those, you know, they, they, they make you feel like you're, you're not keeping up. But the question is, are, are, you know, what is lust, which is really what we're talking about here, and, and are lusts always bad? God has given us uh, a couple of natural desires one of them is food, of course, and I'm a willing participant in participating in the food end of things. But um, he's also given us a, a, a desire for intimacy. So does how do we balance that? What you know, what is lust and, and, and are they bad? And, and is this part of what God um, tells us about in his word? Yes, so a very i would say simplistic definition of lust uh comes from um, a, a word uh, called epitomia um in in greek which means a very strong desire and um it's important to discern from the beginning that um this epitomia um could be good or bad depending on the context and so if the bible puts that uh, strong desire um, in, a, in a sinful context, such as, uh, for instance, do not, uh, I don't know, covet your neighbor's wife or uh, male or female servant or whatever, um, it's obviously um, a sin. Uh, however, not all strong desires are sinful. So... Yeah, for, and I think the big one that everybody talks about is that Jesus, that word is used of Jesus when he desired to eat the Passover in Luke's gospel. But that's the positive side. But you have to look at context. And I think the context that is probably most definitive is in Galatians 5. When in Galatians 5.16, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lust against the spirit. So what we have in our bodies is strong, passionate desires that desire things that the Holy Spirit does not desire. So when Jesus wanted to eat the Passover with his disciples, he was desiring to do the Father's will. It was no different than Jesus being in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, not my will, but thine be done, right? 
But what we deal with is a battle where the strong desires we have actually war against what the Holy Spirit desires for us. So as we're talking about the lust of the flesh, we have to realize there's many lusts, there's many desires. Um, We have strong desires for food, strong desires for intimacy or physical connection. But I think we have other desires, desires for popularity. There can be desires for wealth. I mean, all of these are strong desires. And that's, by the way, why purity is not simply a conversation of how do we protect ourselves in the area of sexuality, but rather purity is how do we live in compliance to the desires of the Holy Spirit in every area of life. And and so purity is something that should come before marriage, during marriage, if we lose our spouse after marriage, if we never get married, we still remain pure because purity is part of following the desires of the Holy Spirit for life. And we got to realize we will have strong desires that want things that the Holy Spirit does not. And at that point, the, the crisis point is clear. Now the question is, who will we obey? So how do we, from Scripture, John, how, how do we find ammunition, if you will, to to battle this how how do where do we find some of these things and 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 the reasons for battling this yes i think first of all uh, it's prescribed by the word of god that we should not go in that direction and um if we understand from the word of god that we are holy and through christ and that the fact that the bible asks us and tells us we should not follow the way of the world, uh, then that's the, that's the starting point. But um, in the same time, the word of God is also telling us that um, uh, in, during the temptation and uh, uh, whenever we are going through these um, strong desires that are directed in the wrong direction, I think it's important uh, to, to be sure not to blame God for it, and um, I think this is uh, an, an important uh, point to be made uh, because I, I heard, you know, people saying, well, this is who I am and I cannot help it. And uh, in a sense, they are trying to rationalize um, their sinful decisions. Uh, just, uh, for instance, saying, yes, but this is who I am. I cannot do better than that. Or they can say, well, you know, just look at our society. They are trying to rationalize Uh, these sinful uh, passions. And I was just thinking uh, uh, through the fact that, for instance, society says, you know, um, you can have whatever intimacy you want with whoever you want in whatever context you have, uh, you you want, uh, because this will bring you pleasure. This will make you happy. Others say, you know, you can have intimacy uh, in an unbiblical context because this could be therapeutic. And especially in our society, which emphasizes therapy, uh, just, you know, to make you feel better. Again, it's, um, it's, it's a way of rationalizing things. And think not about, to mention, hold on a second. Just think about yeah. what you just said. In the first argument, they say, God, you made me do it because you made me this way. Exactly. In the second way, it's that argument of pragmatism. The ends justifies the means. Therapy. As long as I perceive a good outcome, then it must be okay. I mean, just the logic of this doesn't make sense, but you are hitting right on some of them. Are there others like that? I, I would say uh, one more, and this is from Daniel Heimbach. Uh, he makes the case that um, 
culture justifies immorality as means uh, for salvation. Uh, this is the, the straightforward from uh, the modern paganism. And um, I was just thinking when you explained how we got to this uh, society uh, characterized by immorality, I was just, I, I would even go even further back in history in, in during the modern times uh, at the starting point of modernism, which made a void in, in, in the culture um, that tried to desacralize the, the nature and uh, basically made, made a void. And so during the postmodern times, that void that was created by modernism was filled with paganism, which emphasizes... So, so help me with this void. So people in modernism, yeah. when, I, when people think of modernism, they think of the Industrial Revolution. They think oh, about even. people working... Um, in factories is that where you're starting or where are you going to even a little earlier? i would say uh 17th century uh okay. with the rise of um, new philosophies um secular um uh, mm-hmm. right and by secular i mean um societies without god uh and so you're ideologies think marx the... you're thinking hume you're thinking those kind of guys right e- exactly exactly and that helps right, so creating... what is it that they did what what emptiness did they enculturate that we are all living in the wake of what what is that hole basically they they would say and and this is a a very uh broad um, simplification i would say they uh, made the simple point we don't need god um they turned back to the greek and roman philosophies that were before uh christians um and so they just simply said well you know um Man is the center of the universe, and we can decide. We don't need God for anything. And that was, I would say, amplified with the new discoveries in, in science, which kind of in, uh, you know, said, well, this approves whatever we, we believe, that we are right. And um, So, so let me the, ask you this. As you say science, there is an evolutionary notion that, that, that underpins this, right? What is that? Well, is the uh, uh, Charles Darwin um, you know, with the evolution of species in the 19th century. So, and fundamentally, what mankind understood after that, and when I say understood in um, air quotes, there is that we're just beasts, right? I mean, exactly. we're just evolved beasts. So, if other animals deal with sexuality in a beastly way, we can as well, right? And the <laughs> middle of the 20th century, um, I think it was, um, um, characterized by the rise of biotechnologies, for instance, contraceptives, which led to the 1973 Roe v. Wade, uh, you know, decision. And then, you know, this, it was legalized. They had, you know, people had the means of medicine to live however they want. And now, 50 years later, we are in this um, moral mess. And so what's happened then is going back to that, the earlier time and just throughout the last, you know, periods of time, maybe a hundred years, 150 years, 200 years, whatever that may be. um, What you're saying then is, is that what we are seeing today is the normalization of some of these sort of extreme ideas that were put out in the 17th century and they become normalized. And what we are seeing is the result of that. Exactly. So we, we so, see today, yeah, the salvation through even like this uh, intimacy, non-biblical intimacies, uh, like, for instance, uh, wild ideas from the East, like you can have a cosmic harmony through sexual intimacy and you can have the highest levels of spiritualization in 
sexual relationships. So yeah, I remember Hugh. I heard an interview once with Hugh Hefner, um, and he was the founder of Playboy magazine. And certainly, pornography has been a massive shift towards depravity in our culture. But Hugh Hefner viewed contraception, the pill, as the greatest savior um, for Western society because in the hippie movement of the 60s, what people don't talk about from the summer of love was how many children were born after that summer of love and they were born without knowing who their fa- their parents their fathers were um there were children that were born to single moms that were now living on communes without a way to provide for them and when contraception comes out Hugh Hefner looks at that pill and says now you can have all of the pleasures of immorality without any of the responsibilities of being a parent um and I think that's a way you can understand how our culture views the salvation. What it does is that we're being saved from the responsibilities of human sexuality. And what we're given is the opportunity to step into anything that, uh, that our fleshly lust might pursue or what road we might go down. And so modern technology has opened up doors that Freud could never have imagined could have been opened. And um, and, and I, I feel like that defines the battleground for where a lot of our people are right now. We're looking not only at our own struggles, but we're looking at the struggles of our children, our grandchildren, and we're seeing people that are really being bound by lust. So maybe we ought to do is go to Romans 6, because I think it's really important that we, we get to say, if this is the battleground, this is the fight. What do we say? What, I mean, what does the Bible do to help us deal with this fundamental problem? In, in Romans 6, 11, it says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What we have to understand is this. The Bible does not deny the existence of these desires in us, but it calls us to put them to death so that we can live to God, okay? So, so what we, have to, we don't have to deny the fact that we have strong desires that go in a bad direction. What we need to do is we need to deny those desires the right to control ourselves. And I think 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3 supports that uh, very dramatically, and that says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. That is, you know, Romans 6, 11 is, you know, we, we need to consider ourselves dead to sin. And here's specifically what we're talking about in this case, in, in the in the case of our uh, topic today. And before we hop back to Romans 6, I remember I was sitting in a um, big lecture hall one time with a whole bunch of young people that were looking at going to ministry missions, that kind of thing. And a speaker got up and said this, if you knew something was God's will, would you be willing to do it? And I mean, they're all like, yeah, I will go anywhere in the world. I will do anything. He opened up to that passage and said, this is the will of God for you. Even your sanctification, you abstain. And he said, you will never accomplish God's will in ministry on a mission field if you don't accomplish God's will in this area first. You will disqualify yourself. And and I feel like that sense of commitment that we would have to whatever the Lord wants in terms of ministry and focus and direction, that ought to be the kind of commitment we have in this area. Um, 
pulling ourselves back to Romans 6, after it talks about that we reckon ourselves dead to sin, listen to what verse 12 says. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not present the members as instruments of unrighteousness of sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Let's unpack that a little bit. John, what, what do you think it means when it says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body? Um, I think the Bible says <clears throat> here is that um, we should not allow the sin in our life to rule us, to guide us, to uh, be the one uh, in the driver's seat. Uh, that's, uh, I think, what uh, the Bible basically says here. And um, when, uh, especially considering, like, we are dead to sin. Uh, dead is dead. But in the same time, probably one of, some of our listeners might think, well, you know, I struggled with, let's say, pornography for years and years and years and whenever i'm stressed whenever there is something bad in my life uh whenever let's say you know i had an argument with my wife or anything like that i go back to the same old things and probably you are wondering okay how how do i put to death basically these these ideas and probably one of the first advices and the best one that i could probably saying probably you you pastor team might add to this one i'm just thinking bring this issue to the lord and uh, in your own strength you will not be able to break these sinful um inclinations but don't forget what the bible says about christ um apart from me you can do nothing so the lord will give you power to go even through these uh sinful inclinations so, Alan, you and I know Jim Hunter because we both have a connection to Central Seminary. And uh, I'll never forget as I walked, uh, Jim Hunter walked us through this passage years ago. And one thing that was really helpful to me when he got to verse 13, he said exactly what you said, John. He said, now, how do you do that? You present the, your members as instruments to God, right? Instruments of righteousness. And you stop presenting them as instruments of unrighteousness. And I'll never forget. He looked at us. He said, what are the members of your body? And then he said, you have to do an instrument check on your body. And he pointed, you, your eyes are instruments. Your mouth is an instrument. Your hands is an instrument, right? Your feet are an instrument. He said, the reason that we don't view, present our, we don't view ourselves as dead to sin is because we keep using our body to do sinful things. So I always say, you know, the best way to stop looking at pornography is you no longer use your eyes and your hands to do it. If you don't use your eyes and your hands to do it, it'll pretty much stop, right? If you're having an immoral relationship with your next door neighbor, the best way to stop it is don't use your feet to go over there anymore. I mean, I know it sounds really basic, but that's Paul's argument. It is you view yourselves as dead to sin, alive to Christ, and you say, I'm not going to use my eyes anymore for that which is evil, I, but I will use my eyes for that which is good. So, Alan, what is this whole principle of replacement in that? If I stop using my eyes to look at evil, what should I be using my eyes to look at? Well, at a very minimum, you should be looking at God's word to strengthen your, strengthen your resolve 
as I, as I see in uh, verse 14 of chapter 6, it says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law but under grace. It's God's grace, and you find reinforcement of God's grace in his word. You replace that with, uh, with holy things, with uh, things that are, are pure. And, and uh, I think Paul says that in another place where it says, you know, think on these things. And that's, that's part of the argument, part of the, the fight against uh, uh, putting down sin and using our hands and our feet and so forth as instruments of sin. Now, if we go to 1 Corinthians 7, I think what we find on that is, is in most Christians' lives, but not all, the Lord actually provides a way to deal with these strong desires. And I feel like we wouldn't be wise to end this podcast if we don't actually remind ourselves of this. God has not given us these strong desires for intimacy and physical connection for no reason. But God has intended that we use that these desires drive us to marriage. In 1 Corinthians 7, it, it talks about it's not good to light a fire or, or to cause a, a strong desire between a man and a woman unless it's in marriage. Okay, so let me just say that I think sometimes people view all this conversation in, in Christian circles as like the world worships these sin, this desire. We ought to become monastic and hate the desire. That is not at all what God has intended, but rather God has intended that Christian men and women come together. Let me say that a Christian man and a Christian woman comes together in marriage. We are arguing from, I just realized what I said there. Uh, we are arguing for monogamy. Okay. Um, the, and I think it is incredibly important that we kind of get a sense of that. Maybe one of you would like to read for us a little bit from first Corinthians seven. So we get a sense of what that passage is. In chapter 7, verse 2, it says, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife. Let each woman have her own husband. Uh, and this is, this is the, um, uh, the antidote, if you will, be, uh, for sexual immorality, is that we are to be married, uh, husband, one man, one woman. It says in verse 3, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, likewise the wife to her husband. Uh, and, and this is the antidote. This is the... the um, way that we put down the desires that are inherent with us and not necessarily put them down, but you focus them, as you said, into a monogamous relationship. Yeah. But I love that self-correction you did. By the way, one of the things when you're having a podcast, we sometimes self-correct our own words because we hear ourselves. I, I really feel like sometimes what you, what you said first is what a lot of young people are thinking when they're looking towards marriage. And that is, if I can just be married to the right person, I'll never deal with inordinate um, affection again. And the fact of the matter is that doesn't work. What works is when you take the desires God has given you and you intentionally focus them on the person that God has given you to be married to, and you do not distract and you do not let them go any other way. And that's exactly what we're called to. And by the way, I also think within this needs to come a conversation of singleness. I mean, Jesus talked very clearly that there are people who are singles for the kingdom of God's sake. Um, or kingdom of heaven's sake. And what we have to understand is that even those folks, they are channeling those desires to what God has for them and limiting themselves for the ministry that God has called them to. You see, God does not tell us to abandon or ignore the desires that he has given us, but rather he calls us to self-limit to holiness. Um, and that is in marriage. I got to say, 
if you're listening to this or you're a mentor and you're working with someone that's younger, I got this conversation is incredibly important. Marriage does not change the heart of the people exactly. who are getting married. Repentance, faith, the cleansing of the word of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, that changes the heart. Um, I've, I've counseled people that have said, man, I, I can't believe I still have a pornography problem. I had porn problem before I got married. I thought when I got married, it would all go away. And I'm like, no, uh, marriage doesn't change that. You can't put that on your spouse. No, that's on you. You need to deal with that sin yourself. And I, I so I, I think that's a really important concept there. And that is, that's why we refer to it as personal sin. It is, it is our internal desires that we have to have to take control of, take reign over. You know, this has been an, an interesting podcast and in that it is a very sensitive topic about a very personal thing. And, and, and that is personal sin. Uh, as Pastor Tim just said, we're trusting that you have been able to learn about personal sin, become more equipped to discuss this matter uh, with those who you are discipling. Um, it is a, a it is a topic that we need to be sensitive about, but we also need to be firm about and that the scripture has told us um, how we are supposed to uh, control ourselves and so forth. Uh, the remedy, of course, for personal sin is is found in scripture and, and your view of Christ and and so forth. We encourage you to continue to pray for those with whom you are discipling, especially dealing with sensitive issues like personal sin. We also continue to encourage you to memorize scripture. Being familiar with scripture and having it in your mind is one of the best defenses that we have for personal sin. Being reminded of God's word in our hearts is uh, what David said in the Psalms. Well, until next time, when we pick up the second half of this chapter and talk further about personal sin for pastors Tim and John, I'm Alan. So long.